But let's pray. God, you are the mighty one. You are the Lord. You're the only one who can speak and summon the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. And out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God, you shine forth. But Father, we know you are coming. You don't keep silence. And before you is a devouring fire. Around you a mighty tempest. And you call to the heavens above and to the earth that you may judge your people. You call out, gather to me the faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And Father, the heavens declare your righteousness. For you, God, yourself are the judge. And God, I pray as we read today through a somewhat sobering passage that we will hold these things in tension. Your mercy of calling all your people and your justice as shown in your righteous judgment. God, speak to us, come and meet us here today as we worship through the preaching of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Now that we've got our sound worked out, let's play a game together. We're going to play the old game, Rock, Paper, Scissors. Ready? If you don't know by now how to play this game, just watch and follow along. Your objective is to beat everybody on your row. Okay, I'm going to say, rock, paper, scissors, go. And when I say go, you throw down either rock, paper, scissors. Ready? Rock, paper, scissors, throw. All right. How did you do? Yeah, yeah, it's hard. It's hard. What do you do in the tie? I'll explain that maybe someday. The funny thing about that game is, like a lot of things in life, is I threw paper. Was that a good throw or a bad throw? Well, it wouldn't have been good if I was playing Byron because he shot up the scissors, right? But if I was playing a rock person, I would have won. My success, my play, it depends on the story around it, right? A lot of things in life are like that. More seriously, perhaps, I was recently in China and I was working there and I received a text from my wife that contained a picture that I'm going to try to put up here. This was a picture I got. If you don't know, that is not just any Chinese girl. That's my Chinese daughter. So it was in China, but she was not. She was home. And all I got was this in a text form. Now, is that good news or is that bad news? Well, it's bad news if in fact the words that follow say there's Shiloh's come down with a hideous incurable disease and she's now in the hospital. That's bad news, right? But what if the words that follow say something to the effect of Shiloh was in a school bus wreck and there was only one survivor? Well, that changes the news, right? Because she's still alive. Today's text works a little bit like that. Sometimes in the Bible, you'll receive news, and it can be good or it can be bad, depending on the story of your own life. And that's the way 2 Peter is going to work as we arrive in chapter 2. We're going to receive some news that can function as good news, hope-filling, or it can be horrendous news, depending on how you are living your life. So as we scroll through this text, 
I want you to be asking your life type of questions to yourself. How are you living your life? Especially when no one is looking. What drama dominates your heart? What song sings in your soul? What beliefs about God do you hold most dear? So dear that they drive all of your life decisions. Because it's your story that's going to determine whether the news in today's text is either good or bad. Well, here's the news. It's very short, and I hope you can remember it. It's just a simple phrase that maybe you can repeat to yourself throughout the week. Here's the phrase. The phrase is, the Lord knows how. The Lord knows how. That's simple, and it comes directly from our text today. The Lord knows how. It's something you can repeat throughout the week. Sometimes in sermons, it's just easy to grab onto one phrase that you can remember throughout the week. The Lord knows how. Read with me in verse 9 of chapter 2 in 2 Peter, where Peter writes, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Did you get that? If you're taking notes, here are going to be the two broad points of your outline. First, the Lord knows how is the main point. And then under that, you can write to rescue you from your trials. And the Lord knows how to punish you for your rebellion. The Lord knows how. And this text and this sermon is first and foremost centered around God and who He is and what God does. And because God chose us to bring into His reality, this news that the Lord knows how is critically important to us. In fact, our very existence depends on it. So we're going to zoom in on it. The Lord knows how to rescue you and to punish you. So let's jump in here the text in verse 1, so we can better evaluate ourselves in light of God's Word. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, we have the setting of the stage in the story that Peter's about to tell. Every good story needs some good bad guys, right? Or some bad bad guys, better said. Story isn't much without them. Star Wars without Darth Vader would be Star Recess, right? Wouldn't be a good story. And Peter knows that, and so he lets us know who the bad guys are in the story. Verse 1, read what it says. But false prophets also arose among the people. There are your bad guys, the false prophets. Now because we're starting this chapter kind of as an independent unit, it might be easy to forget all that we studied before in chapter 1 leading up to this. So you've got to remember that the link between chapter 2 and chapter 1 is the theme of prophecy. And Peter made a point in chapter 1 of saying that you can trust the Scriptures, God's prophetic Word, to embrace in your life and to guide you as your source of strength and truth a lamp in our darkness for two reasons. You can trust them for two reasons. First, because in the old days, prophecy was revealed to us from God. And secondly, by God's Spirit, He interpreted them through prophecy. So Scripture was revealed by God and interpreted by God through prophets. So it's trustworthy, is what Peter has already said in chapter 1. But now he says, 
Everything wasn't just rosy in the old days. Some false teachers came in, some false prophets entered in, so that in verse 1 he can say, false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you today. Just when things look cheery, Peter inserts the jab that because there were false prophets back in the old days, you can anticipate, you can count on there be, being false teachers among you in the church today. These are folks through sneaky subtleties who will secretly bring in what Peter calls destructive heresies. Now a heresy is a false teaching about God, man, or salvation that will lead you away from God and toward destruction. And that's what Peter is saying is going around in his day and it still persists in our day as well. Well, how do we know a false teaching when we see one? In part, it's because of their message. They tend to belittle the glory of Jesus Christ in their teaching. Right? Peter says in verse 1, he says it a different way. He says, they will even deny the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves Swiss destruction. So a false teacher will try to spread things about, about Jesus that will sell Jesus short and belittle his glory. Now the fact that Peter uses master language when talking about him means that the flavor of heresy in the church at that time was denying Christ's authority. Right? So they will deny his glory, his authority. They will really sell him short. Now here, here's the deal with authority as according to the scriptures. If you don't know it, the scriptures will teach that you are always under some type of authority, either God's or your own. You're always going to be under some type of authority. And when you hear that, you may think, well, <laughs> I want to choose my own authority over somebody else's, because if I could just be in control, being under my own authority, things would go according to my plan. It's almost like driving to work. Sometimes when I drive to work, I'm timing how long it takes me to drop my son off at school and then go to work. There are good days and there are bad days, but I'm always thinking if I could just get rid of these red lights, things would go a lot smoother for me until what? One day a storm happens and all the red lights are down and it's just utter chaos. I can't go anywhere. It's a gridlock because some people are selfish and they're not using common sense, not me, of course, but everybody else. And it's a gridlock there and that's what can happen. You think if you're under your own authority, there's freedom. But actually what happens is spiritual tyranny. And Peter knows this. And the false teachers will try to lead us into thinking that leaving Christ's authority is good and living under it is bad. But mercifully for those in the church, Christ came and he gave up his life as a price or as a ransom, as we just sang beautifully, for our sin and to purchase us under his authority. And when he purchases us, he actually, it's almost counterintuitively, but he, he, he purchases us away from being bought and controlled by sin and to a freedom to enjoy the greatest source of pleasure in the universe, which is himself. And so living under Christ's authority is better than all the other options. Again, we pretend that, hey, well, my authority would be best. It wouldn't. That's why Christ came and he bought you away from your sin. 
that false teachers will deny this. They will say Christ had no claim on my life, my identity, my sexuality, my career motivations, my family decisions, my relationships. So to test their claims, you need to always be asking this question. Is this teacher freeing me up to love Christ's commands and love him more for it? Is this teacher freeing me up to want to follow the life-giving commands of Jesus Christ? Because therein only lies true freedom. There's one more thing mentioned here in these opening verses that I don't want to confuse you, so we have to kind of talk through it. I don't know if you caught it here, but what Peter is saying, he says, there are some of our own people, church members, who Jesus died for and redemptively purchased, who are now going to be destroyed for their rebellious teaching. Did you catch that? There are some of us in the church who are now going to be destroyed because they're rebels and they're teaching this false junk. This should or could raise the question in your mind, well, how can someone that Jesus died for, someone who's a member of the church, actually be eternally punished here? See in the text where it says he's purchased them, he's bought them. Is Peter saying that Jesus died for people who will eventually lose their salvation? That can be confusing as you read this, so I want to say a few words of explanation before we move on. First, we have to understand that the scriptures present Jesus' death as being particular in scope. What I mean by that is it is for a specific people. Jesus said specifically that he died for the sheep. In John, he calls them the sheep. In John 10, 11, he says, the good shepherd, that's him, lays down his life for the sheep. In verse, uh, same, uh, similar verse, four verses later in John 10, says, Jesus has Jesus saying, I lay down my life for the sheep. So these sheep are people God has elected for salvation based on his sovereign good pleasure. So we know that much from those passages and many more that God has died for a specific people, those he has chosen for salvation. Secondly, we need to understand that several other texts in the Bible also teach us that those for whom Christ died will endure unto salvation. Those for whom Christ died will endure unto salvation. Staying in John alone, we see in John 6.40, Jesus saying, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Hear the perseverance within that promise there. Also later in John 10.27-28, Jesus says, My sheep will hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. So we have these groups of verses that say, Jesus died for a particular people, and those for whom he died will persevere until the end. We bring that into this. We ask the question, well, what does he mean then when he says the master bought some folks, and yet they're going to be destroyed? Well, maybe... Illustrations will help you understand how what I think Peter is doing here is using the language of perception. What if I said to you this morning when you walked in the door, I said, hey, what time did the sun come up today? 
you would understand that I'm talking about perception and not reality, right? Hopefully you, would, you wouldn't think, hey, Pastor Travis still thinks that the sun raises around the earth. No, you would think he's talking about perception. What time did the sun come up? Or maybe an illustration from the world of entertainment. Have you ever seen a magic trick? Uh, magic tricks use this all the time. There's an old one from the 1800s uh, that's called Catching a Bullet. And you may have seen it in a movie or something where the magician will load a gun, you know, stuff it like in the old days where they had to stuff the gun and powder and all the stuff down in the barrel. And actually he would pull the bullet out while he was stuffing it, but nobody would know, right? And so he had the bullet in his hand and then he would give the gun to somebody out of he would say, shoot me. And they would take aim and they would shoot him and he would go... Aha, I caught the bullet from the gun, right? He's trying to create the illusion that he actually caught a bullet, but he's not actually speaking truth. I think what Peter is doing is speaking into the illusion that these false teachers had created. Remember, they had been in the church, so everybody thought they were bought by Jesus. So when Peter says, they're denying the one who bought them, He's speaking to everyone's perception. Everybody in the church always thought this guy was for real, bought by Jesus. That was our perception. That's the illusion they created. But in fact, they turned out not to be one of the true sheep. It's a very confusing passage, so we stopped there and took a break to just explain it. But now let's travel forward. On with our main theme here. The Lord knows how. So after setting the stage here, introducing these bad guys, we move on to verses 2 and 3. Look what Peter says. Many and many will follow, these false teachers, their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Let me just note a few things in these verses for you. First, Peter is going to make an explicit connection between false belief and sexual sin, between believing the wrong thing and immorality. You can't get around that. He shares that the false teachers are involved in what he calls sensuality. And don't believe the lie that unorthodox doctrine carries no moral consequences. It does. And Peter makes that clear here. A second thing about these verses, false teachers are often motivated by greed. Right? If you lived through the 80s at all, you'll remember the lineup of false teachers, televangelists. A lot of them were motivated by greed. They would go to the screen and they would say, put your hand on the screen and now send me your money. They would teach a false gospel and then they would try to rip you off. Reminds me of a quote from the famous philosopher Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter. Remember the crocodile hunter? He was great. He's right on my level, man. Uh, He once said, somebody would ask him, are you scared of these crocodiles that you hunt all the time? And he said, crocodiles are easy. They just try to kill you and eat you. People, it's hard. They'll try to be your friend first and then try to kill you and eat you. And that's the deal with these false teachers. They operate by manipulating people, luring you in, and then snatching your soul. Crocodiles. Thirdly, look at the start of verse 2. One of the most frightening things about these evil 
false teachers is that they multiply. Peter says, many will follow them. In other words, this passage just turned from watch out for those guys into a watch yourself because you're liable to be influenced by them. Bad leadership ends up in some awkward, awful situations. I saw a funny video this week. I'm going to try to put it on the screen behind me. And I just want to make you laugh. Okay, we're going to try to get... All right, check out this dog. There you go. (laughs) Well, there's the steak. One more try. Donut. Whiff. (laughs) Let's see. This is a meatball or something. And... Finally, my favorite... The taco. <laughs> and that's just funny. This is a serious text, but we need a break. And imagine yourself. I mean, that was poor leadership by the owner, right? It wasn't doggy abuse. And I love dogs. Somebody told me the other day because I said I like cats. They said, "Why do you hate dogs, man?" I don't hate dogs, but I will tell you, you'll never catch a cat doing that. <laughs> But that illustrates the absurdity of what happens when you, get, when you follow a bad leader. It's a bad leader who throws a taco at a dog that can't catch, right? And that's what happens when you fall under the influence of a false teacher. Bad leadership affects everybody. And finally, the fourth thing we see here is that, back to our theme, the Lord knows how to deal with this rebellion, The Lord knows how to deal with the rebellion of the false teacher. Sometimes because God's timing is not matching up with our timetable, it's easy to uh, disbelieve that God knows how to deal with this kind of stuff. You might ask the question, well, why in the world does God let these things persist? Peter is saying, God knows how to deal with this. Their condemnation is not idle. Okay? Their destruction is not asleep, says Peter. These people will get theirs. God knows how to deal with their rebellion. And now the text will turn because in the next seven verses, Peter is going to build a case for God's ability to punish evil. All right? And I got to tell you, it's not the most fun, sunshiny text to preach. The idea that God is going to punish and condemn evil and evildoers to eternal hell. It's not real popular in our society. In fact, I was driving down the road the other day listening to a podcast. And it was one of those podcasts where famous person uh, interviews famous preacher. Maybe you listen to those sometimes. I like to. There's a famous preacher from England. I won't name his name because I want to give him some benefit of the doubt. But what he said in this podcast was he, did. he didn't want to talk about judgment because that in Jesus we don't see any judgment. We only see compassion and love and healing. So when he preaches the true Jesus, he is not going to mention any guilt-ridden idea of damnation or judgment because that's not therapeutic. It's not helpful. That's the kind of idea that rampant in our society that God, because He's good after all, would never 
judge anyone. But Peter says differently, and now he makes his case. Now here's the thing. If God were like that, kind of like a good uncle, you know your fun uncle that would always give you candy and take you to sporting events, if that's the way God was, I would preach that. But God is much more glorious than that. He doesn't present himself as uncle. He presents himself as father. And in presenting that, he presents all the glories of his mercy on those who believe and trust him forever, but also judgment and condemnation towards those who rebel. God wants you to see all of his glory, including his serious justice. And so that's what he shoots for here. Here are Peter's pleas designed to show you the seriousness of how God feels toward rebellious sinners. And again, it could be us who are mistakenly following false beliefs. But we'll get that into a minute, in a minute. Here are four exhibits that Peter lays out to prove to you that God is very serious and that he knows how to deal with rebellion. Let's cycle through them really quick. Exhibit A, we have the rebellious angels. That's his first exhibit. And it's a wild one. Prepare yourself. Look at verse 4. Peter says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, he's starting a big if-then statement. All right? So he's saying, if God didn't let them off the hook, you can rest assured that he's not also going to let these false teachers off the hook. Angels sinning, what in the world is this talking about? I thought angels were good. Well, what I think he's referring to is a specific bizarre text that we have in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. If you read that, you may have uh, wondered about that in the past. What's it talking about? Uh, Peter doesn't specifically name that text, but I think from the context we can tell he's talking about that. In that text, though it's a challenging one, it seems like this happened. Angels, as they often do, came to earth in human form. All right? And in human form, they had human capacities. And while they were walking the earth in human form, they were tempted and they committed sins with women, according to Genesis 6. And Peter is saying, God did not let them off the hook. God took those angels and he judged them. And now, because he judged them, you can also count on him judging false teachers today. I think that's his first starting point. In the Jewish mind, they had a much better category for angels coming to earth and being judged. We don't think about angels that much. In the West, we're not very supernaturally oriented. But the Jewish mindset had a category for this. The Roman mindset did as well. They were all into gods walking around. So this was a good starting point for Peter, but we're going to move past it because it may not be the strongest exhibit for you. Today, exhibit B, he says... Look at Noah's contemporaries, right? Verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So again, I'm not sparing someone else, says God. I'm not sparing all of those in the ark and the Noah story who were swallowed up by the flood. When I was a kid, I loved the story of Noah's ark, right? Had animals, a cool boat. Man, I thought that was the best, but it also has an amazing picture of God 
showing his justice off to all the rebels. And there's an element that Peter here introduced that he is going to save some, right? He, in that story, saved the righteous ones. He saved the godly. He saved the family of Noah. And Peter says, uh, for the first time, a little bit of hope here. God knows how to punish those who rebel, but he also knows how to save the godly from trials. The Lord knows how. Exhibit C from verses 6 to 8. And if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, hear that judgment talk, he condemned them to extinction, again, more tough judgment talk, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. That's pretty clear. He's using them as an example. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deed that he saw and heard. So as with the flood story, all these, study, all these stories are stacking up here from Genesis. Peter highlights how in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah found in Genesis 18, God continues to condemn those who rebelled against him and he rescues the one who trusts him. In Genesis 18, we see Lot and his daughters saved from the extinction, from the fire, from the condemnation that Peter refers to. So you're supposed to get from exhibit A, B, and C. The Lord knows how. You can trust he will punish rebellion, and he will rescue the godly. Now, we see also in 9, verses 9 and 10, he finishes this giant if-then statement that he started a while back. Remember what he said. So if God did these things in the past, with the angels, with Noah, with Sodom and Gomorrah, then, verse 9, This is our theme verse of sorts, verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And verse 10, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious one. So we see it loud and clear from this verse again. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to punish the rebel. Verse 10 circles back to the very introduction of the chapter. Rebellion against God is often expressed through sexual deviance, says Peter here, by the phrase of the lust of defiling passions. And also through the opposition of God's authority, you see in verse 10. Now, I want to talk about this now. We've read through the verses. Now, I want to bounce from the text to our own lives here. It might be tempting for you to read a text like this that's chiefly about false teachers and get up and leave when you're ready to leave and say, okay, I got it. Don't follow false teachers. I'm not a false teacher. I'm not going to do that. I'm out. This was an easy one, right? But I want to, yes, there are many false teachers we could name here today that I don't want you to follow, but that's not the direction I want to apply this. I think it's important that we begin to look and evaluate our own hearts in light of this text, right? Particularly the concerns of verse 10. 
which is the sin of rebellion against the authority of God expressed explicitly as sexual immorality. So we're going to talk about this. And it's important that before we talk about it, we think, we frame it in terms of a rebellion against authority. Right? Rebellion against authority. For that's the real spiritual sin that's underneath the physical expression of sexual infidelity. There's a false gospel that has many aspects to it that we begin to believe before we actually participate in any type of sexual immorality. And the false gospel has a lot of aspects to it, but according to Peter, one of the aspects that we do not understand when we find ourselves tempted and even falling into sexual immorality is the idea that there is a coming judgment. We often function, most of us, especially when we're tempted, in believing a false gospel that says, I can do this, and there's nothing Jesus can do about it. Because he's not here, I don't see him, I don't feel him, and I've gotten away with it before. That's the false gospel that you believe when you fall into sexual immorality. The true gospel says Jesus is coming. So if we look back even, uh, if you noticed, when, when I went through the exhibits that uh, Peter mentioned, he mentioned false teachers, he mentioned dark angels, he mentions Noah's peers, he mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah. In three out of the four instances, God was judging all of those people for sexual immorality, except for the exception of Noah. The problem there was violence. But what was the first thing Noah did when they got off the boat? If you remember that story, participate in sexual immorality. I have a friend who works in HR for one of the largest Christian organizations here, and he's been doing it for years. And he said, 10 years ago, when we were screening our people, we would have to ask all the guys uh, the internet pornography question. How much are you, not, not if you're participating in it, but how much are you participating in it? Because 60 to 80% of the men in our church are somehow involved in this. And he said, now today, he also asked the women that question because more, something like 30 to 40%, he said, of the women he talked to were also tempted in, in this way. And so if you are here and you are tempted by internet porn, or lust over co-workers, or homosexual relationships, adultery, infatuation with movie stars. This text is for you. One famous preacher said, the single greatest detriment to godly living is losing sight of the coming judgment of Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 12? He said, on judgment day, People will give an account. People will have to give an account to Jesus, not because he doesn't see us, not because he's aware of it, because he wants it to be publicly clear while he, why he's given a just judgment. He will list all of our sins against him, especially these sexual immorality type sins, and then it will be clear to all why he's meting out judgment in that day. Elsewhere, we have the author of Hebrews saying in chapter 10, 26, saying, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume 
his adversaries. And, you know, at this point, you might rightly ask, hang on here, pastor. Aren't you just trying to scare people straight (laughs) with this judgment talk? I don't know if that's the best tactic. And I get it. And I agree with Pastor John Piper, who says wisely, there are better reasons to turn to God than to escape judgment, right? I agree with that wholeheartedly. But I also have learned that it does seem that for some of us, a fear of judgment is a, a, a fears are primal motivators. Uh, and if that's what it takes to turn you away from sexual immorality, I'm fine with that. And Jesus is apparently fine with that. And Peter is fine with that. Just think about how you feel about things that you fear. Let's say public speaking. A lot of people fear public speaking. And so when you fear that, you often don't do it. You turn, you turn down opportunities to do it, right? Fear will motivate you. So if fear can motivate you against doing something that is good, Peter's logic is fear of the coming judgment can also motivate you into not doing something wicked, right? Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill the body and afterwards have no more than they can do, but I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. He's talking about the judgment there. So there is a sense that Jesus wants us to be scared straight by the thought of a coming judgment. It's almost like, I don't know if you have children or if you've raised boys, but there is a time in a lot of boys' life, maybe between the age of 18 months and three, when they have trains on the brains, right? Have you experienced this? All of their clothes, they want pictures of trains. Their toys are Thomas. They love the track. Then why not? Because they have bright colors. They have wheels. They make cool noises. Trains are it for a lot of kids in that age group. In North Carolina, we even have an amusement park where we can go and go to Tweetsie Railroad. And the whole thing is like Disneyland for trains. You can go there and they're making money because that's the way kids are wired. And my kids weren't any different. And I remember moving from a town to where there wasn't many trains to where there was a lot of daily trains on the track, real trains. And my kids were fascinated by it. And I thought, as a halfway wise father, maybe it's not a good idea for them to play on the tracks because here these trains are active and the tracks are live. And so I told them, look, the playground is much better than the tracks. Over here we have a yard. It's lovely. It's attractive. There are lots of good things in the yard. But I also swooped him up in my arms and I walked when I knew a train was coming. And I stood about from here to the wall and I saw him see that train coming. And his eyes were like, ah, train! And then as it came closer, if you've ever been that close to a train, it's like, and And so I walked back away. Nobody was hurt. Mothers, don't be mad at me. Nobody was hurt. (laughs) We got back into the yard. He had his train and his track in his hand. I set him down, and it was great. He was like, (laughs) he viewed trains in a totally different way as he got closer to the power and the might of the train. And there are a million beautiful things about our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But one of them is that he is not to be toyed with. And he does have boundaries. For the area of sex, it's clear. Boundaries for sexual actions, sexual thoughts, belong within the marriage covenant. 
That's why Peter is taking this so seriously and telling us, the Lord knows how to punish your rebellion. So that's the first thing to remember. But he doesn't leave us there in verse 9. He says, also the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. You might say, I'm struggling with sexual immorality. I'm not godly. I won't be rescued. I'm not godly enough. Don't worry. Nobody is. And that's the point of the gospel. Jesus came because our state was so sorry. And he walked in and he saw the old arrangement. And he said, this isn't good enough. I need to be godly for you. So if you believe in me and trust in me and repent, I will actually send my spirit inside of you so that now I declare you godly and you can begin to be transformed as a part of the new creation into a godly person. And that's a part of his rescue. Take heart if you're struggling with these things. God can rescue you in Jesus. And you need to know just practically that here at TCC, we want to walk with you. We offer counseling. You can call me to set that up. We offer personal uh, care. Not as people who have arrived, but as people who are also struggling with this, who want to walk alongside you in the journey. One more thing, because there's still a little bit more hope packed into this text. Let's return to the statement in verse 9 where we are told, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial. This is beautiful, especially for the victimized here today. Peter's example is about a man named Lot from Genesis. Do you remember Lot's Lot? That's funny. Remember Lot's Lot? The hand that he was dealt is described in verse 7. Peter says, Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Lot was in a place where he wasn't the one struggling with the sexual sin, but everybody around him was, and it was impacting him. And that's how many of us live our day to day. If you have a spouse who is caught up in sexual immorality, you feel trapped. Your shame is unbearable because of their sin. It's too embarrassing to talk about. How would you begin that conversation? Sometimes even with your spouse or anybody else to get help. It's shameful. You feel trapped. You need to be rescued. Or maybe it's with your children. I've talked to many of TCC moms who day after day, they're raising little rebels. It's like I feel like I'm spanking the kid all day long. I feel like I'm uh, having to do discipline, time out rules in our house because I just have this rebel. Maybe they don't write cuss words on your refrigerator, but children can become a ground and pound situation for young mothers. And it's to you that Peter here speaks when he says Christ will rescue you. I was encouraged this week by reading some people on this. Here's one from Baptist preacher John Gill from a long time ago. Here's what Gill wrote about this. He says, regarding afflictions and tribulations such as Noah and Lot were exposed to, which are so-called because they try the graces, particularly the faith and patience of the godly, to deliver from these is the Lord's work. He grants his presence in them. He supports under them. He sanctifies you through them. And in his own time, he delivers out of them. For he knows how and by what means and when to do it and is both able and willing 
he had determined to do it. For the nature, the measure, and the duration of the afflictions are fixed by him. And in his providence, he does do it. Friends, it might seem this week that you have had all of hell thrown against you. You've got the scar tissue to prove it. For you, I just want to say, the Lord knows how to rescue you. Gil points something out here. It might not be when you think he should. In fact, the longer I live, the more I stop hoping that in my own story, there will be no pain. Because I know that's not how life works. Right? One author says this, For subjects of King Jesus, death and tragedy are never the last word. The goodness of our God is certain. He has given us His very Son for our redemption and the resurrection punctuates how the last word is one of blessing and joy. So I've stopped hoping for sin-free neighbors, perfect spouse, or kids who never rebel and know these words on the pages of my story, these phrases, these chapters, are necessary if God, in fact, is going to be patient with the rebellious people around me. I know they're necessary, but I also know that they are not God's last word. God's last word in the resurrection is that he defeated death, and ultimately your whole existence will be transformed. Just hang on. It won't be long until we experience the resurrection of Christ and Everything, including the cosmos, is transformed. And on that day, all sin against you will vanish. It will cease. And you may just hear the words heard long ago from Jesus himself. He may turn to you and say, This is my beloved, and my beloved is mine. Folks, there's a lot of hope in these verses today for some of us when we know the Lord knows how to rescue the godly in trials. But I have to also say, this is a sobering text. It should scare the pants off of you if you are in persistent rebellion because God promises and warns that He knows how to punish the rebels.